Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is John Gums. I am a professor of pharmacy and medicine and associate dean at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. I also serve as scientific editor for pharmacotherapy. Today, we are talking with Dr. Paul Boylan about his paper titled, Theophylline for the Management of Respiratory Disorders in Adults in the 21st Century, a scoping review from the American College of Clinical Pharmacy Pulmonary Practice and Research Network. Dr. Boylan is an assistant professor in the Department of Clinical and Administrative Sciences at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center College of Pharmacy. His co-authors included Drs. Abdallah, Bissell, Malasker, Santa Ben-Yez, and Smith. Dr. Boylan, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Let's start with a question that I'm sure is on many of our listeners' minds. Theophylline was first reported used as a bronchodilator in the 1930s. And one of the most common brand names, Theodore, was FDA approved in 1979. Why after 44 years following FDA approval of Theodore and almost 90 years after the drug was first reported used in asthmatics, did you and the pulmonary practice and research network within ACCP decide that a review of Theophylline was necessary? Thanks so much for that question. So I think a little bit of history here is really helpful. I took pharmacokinetics over 10 years ago, and I can recall that one hour lecture that we had scheduled aside for Theophylline, we actually skipped it because it had just fallen out of the top 300 drug list. And this matched up with what I was seeing in practice when I was interning and working in retail pharmacy. That was in Pennsylvania in the late 2000s, 2008 to 2015, we really didn't have many patients who were taking Theophylline. And I could probably count on one hand the number of patients who had an active script for that Theodor 300 that you had mentioned. It was actually something that we couldn't get from our retail pharmacy warehouse, but instead it was a, a vendor specialty product. So if you fast forward a few years later, my co-author, Dr. Melissa Santibanias and I, we were faculty at Larkin University. This was in Miami, Florida. We were there for a few years, 2017 to 2020. And our practice site was in Hialeah, Florida, which is the second largest Hispanic population in the United States. And I think it's really important to note that both Miami and Hialeah had very large immigrant populations not only from what you'd expect in, in Cuba and the Caribbean, but generally speaking from all of Central America, South America, Africa, and Asia. And Melissa and I were very surprised to see that every single day we went into our site, we had at least one patient who was hospitalized that when we did their home med list review, they had been taking Theophylline. And therefore, she and I had to perform therapeutic drug monitoring of those serum theophylline levels while the patients were hospitalized. And the experience was very humbling to she and I because we learned that outside of the United States, theophylline is still one of the most commonly prescribed bronchodilators because it's really affordable for most patients. And as you said, it's been available for almost a hundred years. So we have a lot of evidence on it. 
The flip side on that, though, is that even though our clinical practice guidelines and reports and all of those documents recommend inhaled bronchodilators as the backbone for asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the reality is is that inhalers are still far too expensive and they're really unaffordable for a lot of patients who are living outside of North America and Europe. So although those guidelines cite there's a lot of research that's been done on theophylline, that research has slowly become older and older and older. Majority of that literature is from the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. So to kind of sum up this, you know, Dr. Santibanez and I, she were we were members of this newly formed pulmonary PRN in 2019, and the group was looking to start an inaugural research project, and they were collecting ideas from the membership. So we pitched this project focusing on theophylline pharmacotherapeutics because we felt that there really needed to be a good contemporary update specifically within the 21st century for the entire team of clinicians that are encountering this drug. Dr. Bowen, thank you for that background. I find that terribly fascinating as a backstory, and I applaud you and the Pulmonary Practice Research Network within ACCP for moving this initiative forward. I think it's not only forward-thinking and innovative, but uh, extremely important for a lot of the clinicians who will be listening to this podcast. In, in your manuscript, you spent some time describing why you and the Practice Network chose to use a scoping review methodology. Could you please elaborate a little bit for our listeners why you chose that approach to evaluating the literature on Theophylline and what guardrails or search parameters did you use to frame your search? So our author team identified early on that we wanted to to complete a review article, and that was going to be the best fit for our research question. Our first thought, we were very smitten with the idea of a systematic review because we're all familiar that systematic reviews and meta-analyses sit atop of the evidence-based medicine pyramid hierarchy. Now, the purpose of systematic reviews, however, are to identify, appraise, and summarize all the evidence that answers, and I think this is important, a very focused research question. We're familiar with the moniker, the mnemonic PICO, that stands for Population, Intervention, Comparison, and Outcome. But as our group was working on our research question and our protocol, we identified that the question didn't really align well with that PICO framework for a systematic review. We got through the P and the I. The population included patients with respiratory disorders, and the intervention, I think, is self-explanatory. It was theophylline. But the C and the O, where we determined that a PICO was a P, no. I'm sorry, that's very bad evidence-based medicine humor, but I'm I'm trying to keep you with me. So we, we realized going through that PICO framework that there were too many comparators that could feasibly fit within that C for comparison. We weren't looking just at, you know, theophylline versus a long-acting muscarinic antagonist alone, or theophylline versus an inhaled corticosteroid alone. As many of the listeners are aware, there's lots of different medications that are approved for pulmonary disorders, oral corticosteroids, the phosphodiesterase type 4 inhibitors, the leukotriene receptor antagonists. 
we now live in a biologic world where there are monoclonal antibodies. And then there are some other older agents like the chromones, the mucolytics, and even complementary therapies. Not to mention that patients are likely taking plenty of permutations and combinations of those meds. And it would just be unfeasible to try and, and narrow it down. We wanted to be more broad or scoping in that approach. Speaking of broad and scoping, when we talk about the O for the outcomes, there were a lot of other outcomes that we felt needed to be captured in this review as well. Acute exacerbations of lung disease, hospitalization and rehospitalization. Spirometry is constantly mentioned in our point of care databases and is a, a commonly measured outcome in a lot of the clinical trials. And so for those reasons, we felt that those comparators and those outcomes really didn't fit well within the systematic review framework. But our team was very lucky because we had Dr. Mark Malisker, who had been heavily involved with the American College of Chest Physicians, and he had recently contributed to their clinical practice guidelines on chronic cough. And he was a great resource and mentor for our team, and he was the one who encouraged us to pursue this scoping review. So I wasn't too familiar with what a scoping review was, so I had to look it up and I learned after a little bit of research that the scoping review is similar to a systematic review because it involves an evidence synthesis approach. But the major thing that makes a scoping review different is that they quote unquote map the evidence on a topic. And through that mapping, we are able to identify gaps in our knowledge and to conceptualize topics. So th the goal of the scoping review is not to answer that patient-specific PICO question, but instead to drive further research. And so with all of that being known, our team agreed that we would pursue the scoping review approach for this research question rather than a systematic review. Regarding the guardrails, we limited our search to studies on theophylline to treat any respiratory disorder, not just asthma and COPD, because those are the two most common, but to see what were all of the things that were done. We looked at the adult population, 18 years and older, and because we wanted this to be reflective of the 21st century, we applied filters so that the articles were published after the year 2000. We searched a heck of a lot of different databases that included Ovid Medline, Embase, Sinehall, Scopus, and International Pharmaceutical Abstracts. If you were to look at any of the guidelines or resources on best practices for systematic and scoping reviews, when you complete those database searches, they certainly recommend using Medline and Embase. And then there should be a third resource that is searched. Commonly, that would be Clarivate's Web of Science database. And when we had, when our group had pursued our database search, I had just joined the faculty here at the University of Oklahoma, and our campus had purchased a subscription to Elsevier's Scopus. And comparing Scopus to Web of Science, Scopus has a reputation for indexing more journals and thus nets you a higher search yield. So we opted to include Scopus as that third major database that was searched. Thank you, Dr. Boylan. That was extremely helpful, I think, to both myself and the readership to appreciate the choices that the group made in, in go doing your research. I imagine it was also um, not an easy task with a drug, as you said, which has been around for almost 100 years, to decide where to draw the line. 
since um, the use of the Oplan has tapered off significantly, um, you know, since the 1990s and where to draw that line in terms of the data that you were going to look at versus getting comparisons that are no longer relevant to clinical practice. But I think as our listeners will hear in a moment and the readers will know uh, or see in the manuscript uh, that the line that you drew at 2000 left you with plenty of articles to evaluate. And we'll get to that in just a second. I found it fascinating that one of the criteria you identified in your studies included the review of biomarkers, including serum eosinophils and fractional exhaled nitric oxide. What led you to prospectively decide to include biomarkers in your review of the studied articles? And how did you settle on which biomarkers to focus on? And as a follow-up, please discuss what you found regarding any differences in the impact of theophylline biomarkers between the patients with asthma and patients with COPD. Biomarkers have gained a lot of attention as these surrogate measures of pulmonary disease control, and they've been suggested that they may have some utility to help guide the pharmacotherapy plan. We were very lucky in our research team that we had two investigators, Drs. Abdallah and Dr. Bissell, and they both hold Doctor of Pharmacy degree and Doctor of Philosophy degrees, so PharmD, PhD researchers. So again, in those protocol planning stages, we discussed with them the idea of collecting and reporting on more substantiated biomarkers as well as those that we felt would be emerging and would probably come back into practice or discussion in the next few decades. So Drs. Abdallah and Bissell not only agreed with this approach, but they were very generous and gracious, and they offered to review and chart the articles that pertain to biomarkers. The first biomarker that I'd like to comment on is one that listeners and readers are already familiar with. Those are the serum eosinophils. Serum eosinophils and their levels help prescribers to determine patient candidacy for an inhaled corticosteroid as part of the pharmacotherapy plan for patients living with COPD. Similarly, in asthma, fractional exhaled nitric oxide, or pheno, has been suggested by the American Thoracic Society to help guide inhaled corticosteroid prescribing. We also live in this biologic world that has several monoclonal antibodies that are targeting various interleukins or the receptors that those interleukins are working on. So our research team agreed that we needed to collect and report on not only the clinical outcomes that our patients care about, but also these biomarkers since they're gaining a lot more attention and they're making their way into literature and commentaries, what have you. So in our scoping review, there were two studies that affirmed Theophylline decreased serum eosinophilic cationic protein and C-reactive protein, as well as eosinophilia, interleukin-6, or IL-6, and lipid panel results. The combination of an inhaled corticosteroid plus theophylline did not change or alter pheno into studies. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think that there are arguments to be made that some phase one and phase two studies on biomarkers would warrant future research here, but perhaps not necessarily pertaining to pheno since the studies were inconclusive. Thank you very much. I know as as a clinician, but not necessarily trained specifically in pulmonary medicine, whenever 
I think of eosinophilia or eosinophils, I always tend to think of an allergy or an allergic reaction. Um, I know it's related to inflammatory as well. So I, I think it's, I think not only has your work enlightened some interesting studies that are already there, but I think it definitely sets up uh, the opportunity for future work in this area, specifically as it pertains to the asthmatic cohort. So thank you for that. My next question is that I think not surprising, many of the studies you reviewed, in fact, 18 of the total 55 were focused on theophylline used in adult asthma. Can you please summarize what your scoping review found as it relates to the use of theophylline in that specific patient cohort? Absolutely. So in the studies that we found on asthma, there were exactly 4,653 patients and they were in those 18 trials that you mentioned. There was a lot of heterogeneity across the studies. 13 of them performed randomization. Nine of them mentioned blinding both patients and investigators. 10 had parallel group. 14 were in the outpatients and, and so on and so forth. There were lots of different severities and classifications of asthma therein. Um, we, we list all of that in the paper, but if I were to try and distill it down a little bit, 15 of those 18 studies assessed some type of persistent asthma. Another really important pearl that I, I wanted to tease out here was that there was also heterogeneity in the guidelines or the reports that were referenced within the literature. So we're likely familiar with the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute Expert Panel Report, or EPR, or the Global Initiative for Asthma, the GINA report. So if you look within the studies, six of them reference that EPR3 document, four of them the Global Initiative for Asthma or GINA report, four of them referenced American Thoracic Society, and then one a piece on the British Thoracic Society and one on the European Respiratory Society guidelines as the as their backbone for or rationale for studying theophylline. Five studies didn't at all mention a clinical practice guideline when we reviewed them. Twelve of the studies looked at theophylline monotherapy by itself, and then there were seven studies that also evaluated theophylline in combination with an inhaled corticosteroid. There was some disparate dosing in theophylline, but the most common regimens that you'd see in the table were between 200 and 300 milligrams two or three times daily, trying to achieve a serum concentration between 5 and 10 micrograms per milliliter. Overall, theophylline positively affected the primary outcome in 14 trials, the most common of which was spirometry findings, which was in 11 studies. The post-bronchodilator forced expiratory volume in one second, or FEV1, or the non-post-bronchodilator FEV1 increased in seven trials, and peak expiratory flow, or PEF, improved in five. Four trials that looked at the combination of inhaled corticosteroid plus theophylline reported increases in spirometry, and only one trial demonstrated that the combination of an inhaled corticosteroid plus a long-acting beta agonist, a LABA, produced more improvement in morning peak expiratory flow than the combination of that steroid plus theophylline. But I want to ask, I guess, perhaps or pose a rhetorical question that spirometry is more of a disease-oriented outcome, right? It, it's looking at a lot of numbers. And 
the things that patients care about are their symptoms, their signs, their disease progression, exacerbations. So if we flip from that spirometric train of thought and we start looking at the patient-oriented outcomes that matter, the findings from the review tell a very different story. Asthma-related symptoms and exacerbations were only reduced in five of 18 studies, and the remaining 13 studies that we had in this section were either unremarkable or they failed to assess any sort of outcome beyond lung function. I found it terribly interesting from this part of your paper that there were 13 studies that showed unremarkable or failed uh, to assess outcomes beyond spirometry because the target concentration in the bulk of the studies that you reviewed was five to 10 micrograms per milliliter, which at least in my training was a tad lower than what we were used to uh, targeting that drug at. So I found that terribly interesting as a connection between the slightly low therapeutic range or target range and then the fact that the majority of studies uh, did not show or failed to show any changes in outcomes. Under a broad definition, theophylline is pharmacologically characterized as a bronchodilator. Historically, the benefit to risk ratio associated with the drug made it difficult to justify in a disease like COPD, which was assumed to be driven by more of an inflammatory process. If you could, please summarize what you found in your review on the use and the potential value of theophylline in patients with COPD. Doctors Mark Malasker and Zach Smith were the ones who reviewed and charted 24 studies that described theophylline use in patients living with COPD. Without a doubt, this was definitely the most heterogeneous pulmonary disorder presented in the review. And I really have to shout out to both of them for all of the work that they did in this section. It was a massive undertaking. So whereas the majority of studies that looked at theophylline and treatment of asthma that we just talked about, they were positive, albeit they talked a lot about spirometry or spirometric findings. If you look in the COPD section, only nine of the 24 studies reported positive findings. 15 actually mentioned their results were negative or detrimental, which is which is kind of gives me pause in this space. Because there was such a, a large volume of studies in this section, we tried to identify some common threads or, or subcategories. And what we as a research team came up with were low-dose theophylline, COPD exacerbations, the triad of inflammation, spirometry, and symptoms, and then medication safety. Uh, I would encourage the listeners and our readers to look at table four in the article for specific details within and across each of the studies that we've been talking about. But overall, theophylline was not well tolerated in patients living with COPD, and the patients who were treated with it actually had more adverse events compared to inhaled therapies. We also noted that out of the 24 studies in this section, it seemed as if every single trial that was done had different interventions and there were different controls. And so it was really challenging, if not impossible, to draw clear conclusions within or, or across those studies. 
So we go back to that point why I think a scoping review is a really good approach for this sort of project because they aim to provide guidance for future research. Our current guidelines and reports, especially the Global Initiative for Obstructive Lung Disease 2023 document, now recommends two inhaled bronchodilators to treat most categories or most patients living with COPD. And few, if any, of the studies that we had in Table 4 added theophylline to the combination of long-acting beta agonists and long-acting muscarinic antagonists, your LABA-LAMA dual inhaled bronchodilators. So what we share in our paper is that there need to be future studies looking at theophylline as the third component in triple therapy, that is a LABA-LAMA theophylline. Those sort of investigations are the research that needs attention and investigation. Thank you again. I couldn't agree more. And I think that this serves, if not for anything, it serves as a call out and an invitation to any of the listeners who are researching or have the interest to research in this space. Because as you mentioned in your introductory comments, triple inhaler therapy for patients with COPD in many patients' cases is cost prohibitive. And the ability to know better what the role of theophylline is as the third component to treating these patients per guideline could be tremendously helpful to an enormous number of patients who right now just simply can't afford a triple inhaler therapy. So I applaud you and your group for um, for calling out that opportunity. And hopefully some of our listeners and or readers will take you up on that. Well, not a lot of studies were identified in your manuscript that specifically evaluated low-dose theophylline. I found the information that you published very interesting, especially as it relates to the value or lack of value of adding theophylline to inhaled corticosteroids and or anti-muscarinic agents. Could you please discuss the findings from your review as they pertain to the value of low-dose theophylline? This is a great question. So compared to the predominantly eosinophilic inflam uh, inflammatory process that you would see in atopic disorders, you mentioned this earlier, we're talking about conditions like asthma, allergic rhinitis, or eczema, psoriasis. COPD is more so characterized by neutrophilic inflammation. So this, to a small degree, explains why inhaled corticosteroids are less useful for most patients with COPD, whereas some sort of pharmacotherapy that is anti-neutrophilic may be better at reducing inflammation in that phenotype or endotype of pulmonary disorder. So as you mentioned, theophylline was long considered to be a bronchodilator, albeit at serum concentrations 10 to 20 micrograms per milliliter. And then concentrations above that were what led to the classic toxidrome of central nervous system or gastrointestinal distress. But we started to see more recent research that identified when you don't try and achieve those higher concentrations at the 10 to 20 range, but instead maybe a little bit lower, perhaps between two to five micrograms per milliliter, theophylline possesses more anti-inflammatory actions, which includes the inhibition of neutrophils. 
And because you are using a lower concentration, you're mitigating the risk for adverse drug events. Colloquially, we refer to the schema as low-dose theophylline. And compared to those standard doses of 300 to 600 milligrams per day, low-dose theophylline is achieved at low doses, 100 milligrams two times a day, or a simple 200 milligram once daily dose. There were four studies in this review that identified low-dose theophylline in COPD and one in asthma. Two of the studies assessed the effect of low-dose theophylline on the incidence of acute exacerbations of COPD, and those studies did not find any significant reduction in those outcomes. Not going to fib is a bit disappointing given the hype I think we all had about it. However, this is in alignment with what we see in the GOLD 2023 report. Low-dose theophylline is not listed in the ABE category pharmacotherapy algorithm, whereas inhaled corticosteroids get a nod in that treatment paradigm to be considered to reduce exacerbations who have that eosinophilic phenotype or who have a history of or current comorbid asthma. So we acknowledge in our discussion that a subsequent meta-analysis of low-dose theophylline is absolutely necessary to either refute this practice altogether, or perhaps by aggregating those studies, it, that meta-analysis method might be able to unearth some statistically significant benefits via the aggregation of the data that isn't detectable in those individual trials. I think a lot of our younger clinicians or newly grad, newly trained graduates who don't necessarily get the benefit um, of hearing about the off one because it's no longer mainstream can benefit substantially uh, from the acknowledgement and information that this drug at extremely low dosages compared to historically where we used it may actually have a different pharmacologic property, that being anti-inflammation, compared to how we categorize it historically as a bronchodilator. And I think that just emphasizes even more the point you made earlier around the invitation for future studies in the COPD population as a potential add-on to double inhaler therapy, but an, op an opportunity with theophylline that could provide anti-inflammation at a much lower and cost-effective way. So thank you very much for sharing that. Sleep apnea was a disease not often recognized or diagnosed at the time theophylline was more of a first-line option for patients with asthma. Your review identified a number of studies evaluating the use of theophylline in patients with sleep apnea. Would you please summarize for our listeners what you found in this group of patients? We found four studies that identified theophylline in the treatment of sleep apnea. All of them featured a crossover design, two were double-blinded. It is important to note that these trials were looking at obstructive sleep apnea, OSA, and not central sleep apnea. Uh, the total number of patients in this section were 99, so just one shy of 100, and they were represented across the majority of these trials. And if you looked at the, the composition of individuals, it largely included central European males in their mid-50s, with overweight to obese body compositions. There was a lot of variability in what the theophylline dose was within each of the studies. So for example, one of the trials 
use therapeutic drug monitoring to achieve a serum concentration more than 10. Another used a relatively high dose of theophylline at 900 milligrams once a day for a two-week period compared to another study that looked at just one singular 900 milligram dose. And then that fourth study looked at one singular 400 milligram theophylline dose. Overall, theophylline did appear to have a degree of positive impact on the patients who had obstructive sleep apnea. The outcomes that were studied in three of the four of those trials that were improved include sustained attention, reaction time, subjective improvements in sleep quality, and motor performance. And then theophylline was also shown to reduce the apnea hyponia index in one single center, double-blind, randomized control study of 14 individuals who were living in Germany. So although these results seemingly tip the scales in favor of theophylline towards OSA, I think it's important to be cautious and acknowledge that they had small sample sizes. There was a lot of heterogeneity in dosing strategies, um, and and those are very uh, contentious points. Also really important to note is that continuous partial airway pressure, or CPAP, is the gold standard for the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. And in this section, there was only one study that we identified in our review, it was published in 2005, that looked at patients who were using CPAP along with that 900 milligram dose of theophylline. And the investigators in this study did not observe any statistically significant differences when CPAP and theophylline were combined in that way. And perhaps I'm I'm speculative here, but if you look at the most recent clinical practice guideline from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine on obstructive sleep apnea, they do address pharmacotherapy for the treatment of OSA, and they recommend against the use of theophylline, and actually most medications for that matter, for OSA. And I suspect that that recommendation may have been informed in part because of some of these studies that were published right before that guideline made its way into press. Thank you for that, Dr. Boylan. I want to piggyback now on a, on a comment or some comments that you made earlier when we were discussing concentration variables associated with the offline. And I may be dating myself actually with this question, but when I was trained on the offline, it was drilled into me to follow the medication pharmacokinetically and the drug had a very well-defined therapeutic range. You identified 17 studies in your review that addressed the safety of theophylline, but did not comment much on the role or value of employing a pharmacokinetic monitoring program when using the drug, or even tracking just peak concentrations of theophylline. Could you please comment on that for our listeners and discuss why you believe is the current role if any, for theophylline serum concentrations to minimize toxicity or maximize efficacy? Interestingly, not many of the studies in the scoping review monitored peak theophylline levels, and that those studies that did look or perform TDM really varied in the dose administered, and especially at the time that the serum concentration or the the serum measurement was collected. I think the interpretation that we came to from from this perspective was to, quote unquote, treat the patient and not the lab. 
if your patient is taking theophylline and they start to develop cardiovascular, GI, CNS, any of those toxicities when they're taking theophylline, there's perhaps a decent chance that that toxidrome is due to the methylxanthine. But if the patient is not toxic, still is taking theophylline, and they're still experiencing respiratory symptoms or their lung disease or their respiratory disease isn't controlled, then it's a pretty good bet in the other direction that regardless of what that serum concentration results in, even if it's between the quote-unquote established therapeutic range of 10 to 20, the patient isn't per se benefiting from theophylline because they're still symptomatic, their disease is uncontrolled, but instead now they're just carrying the risk for going toxic on this medication. And as we note in um, our table one, theophylline is metabolized at cytochrome P450, the 1A2 isozyme, and therefore it is a host of plenty of drug-drug interactions. I encourage the, the readers and the listeners to look at table one in the article. We charted about the pharmacologic and clinical properties of theophylline, including monitoring. So to answer your question, I think that therapeutic drug monitoring should be utilized, but not necessarily alone. It's different from those drugs that we perform TDM. We're looking at anti-infectives in the inpatient setting. I think here for this particular agent, we have a more patient-specific story when you collect those levels, and then you assess them alongside a lot of other information including lung function, vital signs, and patient-reported complaints or aberrations in the cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, or neurologic symptoms. Thank you for putting that concept in perspective. I want to use something that you just shared with our listeners around treat the patient, not the lab, as a transition to my next question, and that is that improvement in biomarkers or clinical markers, such as FEV1, are informative, but could be viewed as surrogate endpoints. In your review, you also included some studies that evaluated theophylline and its potential impact on health outcomes. Could you please elaborate on that for our readers? Personally, I found this to be the, the most fascinating. In results section 3.3.2, so this is the COPD section of the article on one of those subcategories I mentioned earlier, we collected and charted studies from administrative claims databases, and that included samples from Taiwan, Canada, Germany, and the United States. From the study that was conducted in Bavaria, Germany, and the United States VA system, Theophylline was shown to worsen mortality and increase patients' risks for exacerbations and hospitalization. Not good, right? But on the flip side, the Canadian Health Administrative Database and Taiwan's National Health Insurance Program showed reductions in exacerbations and sepsis-related mortality, uh, respectively. So I think I, I recall from a, a previous ACCP webinar, uh, one of the presenters had said, this quote, a broken clock is right twice a day. And I try and use that in my practice. And I, I think that comes into play here. And the question becomes, which results that we've collected here represent the truth? Is it Germany and the United States or is it the Canadian and Taiwan research? And so much like a 
broken clock. I sound like a broken record, but I'll say it again for good measure. We need more research using this time administrative data sets. I think that is all the time we have today, Dr. Bowen. I want to thank you very much for spending some time with us today to discuss your fascinating article on the potential reemergence of theophylline as a pharmacologic option in patients with asthma and COPD, and for providing our listeners with some valuable insights from your recently published scoping review of the drug. I hope that through your work, many will consider taking a more active role in reevaluating theophylline and its potential role in the management of these chronic health conditions. Thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. My correspondence is included in the article for those listeners who want to talk with uh, myself and my colleagues further. But until then, all my best to everyone.